Hello, and welcome to season six of the Second Chapter Podcast. I'm your host, Kristen Duffy, and I am so, so, so excited to be back bringing you amazing stories of women who have changed their lives and or careers after the age of 35. As my regular listeners will know, I am on a mission to shout to the world that women do not become invisible, but have stories to tell at every age, and to remind you that it's never too late to start your next chapter. Please subscribe and tell a friend to subscribe to the podcast. Let's start a movement. Today, I'm speaking with Indiana Gregg. Indy studied sports medicine, but after her husband left her with three young kids, she did what anyone would do, decided to become a rock star. But despite success in music, Indy was called to fighting music piracy, which has led to several years in the tech industry, serial entrepreneurship, and her latest venture, App for Freelancers, We Do. My dad used to say, if you want to beat the bank, you have to be the bank. And uh, so I woke up one morning and I was like, that's it. I got up and I'm jumping around and running around and I'm shouting at my husband, I'm going to create this streaming site. It's going to be a community and it's going to be a bank. And so I go into my hidey hole for like several months and, and start building it. Hi, Indy. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. I'm a little jet lagged. So jet lagged. Where are you back from? I came back from San Diego this week and I haven't really... You know, coming back the way into Europe is a tough one. It's so hard. Yeah, it's uh, it was a long red eye trip into London. And yeah, I'm knackered. I'm really tired. <laughs> so I know you're originally from Indiana, but where are you based now? Well, I have a place in Spain and then we theoretically we live in Scotland. But my theoretically. husband's, yeah, theoretically we live in Scotland. But my husband's been working on this house and he's torn it all apart. And I was like, dude, I'm going to Spain. So, you know, I rented a place <laughs> in Spain and the company is in London. So during the pandemic, I thought it's probably a good idea to get some sunshine rather than be cooped up in the Scottish rain. So we came here, me and three dogs and three cats in a startup. Pretty much. <laughs> well, I can't feel so sorry for you being in the sun of Spain, but yes, <laughs> it's a good place to get over jet lag, I assume. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So jumping right into your life, I have a quote that was from you that said that your whole life, my whole life is a series of interesting and sometimes amusing stories. I could literally write a trilogy. <laughs> so I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit, but if you were writing your trilogy, what would the three titles be called? Oh, grief. That's a tough one. Like <laughs> the inciting incident. Probably, gosh, okay, what would be a great title for the first of the trilogy? I guess something like Easy Living by Indiana Gregg. <laughs> Where it's completely the opposite. Exactly. I, I don't know, really. I haven't really thought about that. But yeah, it, it's been a, quite a journey. I, I feel like I've lived quite a few lives because I've changed careers and countries on several occasions. Yeah. And had my first life, my second life, my third life. Maybe I am like a cat. I don't know. No, probably something to do with, with hurricanes and tornadoes out of Kansas or something. Um. Out of Kansas. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> so is that the second one? Easy living, hurricanes, out of, out of Kansas. And where are you now? In my third trilogy or into in, into the sunlight. No, I think probably it would be more of a spiritual journey. I think that different phases of our life, we become more aware of our minds. And I think that would be probably something that would tie in as a thread. But yeah, it's been crazy. I have a lot of crazy stories, things that happened around me, happened to me, doing crazy things that actually led to amazing things. So starting from the first, the first segment, but I know that you were, like we said, um, from Indiana. 
and you started music fairly early in life. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, back home, I I grew up in a really small town. I lived in the cornfields, like typical, really countryside. And I had a speech impediment. I had three brothers. My grandfather lived with us. My mom was looking after him. He had a stroke and nobody really taught me how to talk. So around first grade, I had an orthophonist, a speech therapist that Mm -hmm. my teacher had me visit. And I really saw her every day. She had massive big black afro and she had gaps between her teeth and it was the 1970s she was the only black person i'd ever seen in my life because i lived in the, the the countryside of all countrysides and it was brilliant because i could see where her tongue was like she could show me how she was talking through her teeth and i yeah it was a long experience up through to the eighth or ninth grade that i would see this therapist all through primary school and junior high school. And she basically encouraged music. My grandparents gave us an upright piano. And I learned to play from the age of around six and tinker with the piano and piano lessons and stuff. And I learned to sing and she encouraged that. So that was a thread in my life. And then fast forward, after university, I moved to the south of France and I worked there. And I started a band. And I was working, doing artwork and video and some web design, the early stages of Dreamweaver in the south of France, and working primarily for Sony Digital. And at one point, I had three kids and then decided, maybe I'll take this career a little further. And my husband left me, so I just said, okay, right, I'm going to become a rock star now. (laughs) Because I was desperate mom with three kids. And I thought, that's my answer. I'll just become a rock star now. So I went and got a record deal and wrote a bunch of songs. And um, crazy when I think about it, because what are the odds that I was going to get a record deal at like the age of 32 with three, three little kids? It was just like so weird. Well, yeah, that's the kind of thing that I I go, okay, hold on, hold on. We need to rewind because it's like, oh, yeah, I did some music. I learned how to play the piano to help me with my speech impediment. I sang. Oh, and then I got a record deal. (laughs) (laughs) So somewhere in between, you said after university, did you originally go to university for music or was it for something else? No, I went to university. I studied sports medicine and I was in the Marines for a while. I worked on some knees in, in Jacksonville. Uh, North Carolina. I got a full ride scholarship to university shortly after leaving North Carolina and finished my degree and got pregnant and moved to the south of France. Was it the man that that was the reason for the south of France or was it a job opportunity? A little bit of both, actually, because I was on a Reebok contract. So I got to do some things when I went to the south of France. But actually, my ex uh, was working. He got a job. I we kind of like got a book out on careers because back then you didn't really have internet. <laughs> and I was at his house in Germany and he got this book out and he was reading through all these companies. And I said, oh, Anderson Consulting. I have got some friends who work for them. Go do that. And so he applied for a job with Anderson Consulting and, and went up to Chicago. And I went up to Chicago with him and he ended up getting that job. But they said, look, we're not going to hire you for the United States. We're going to hire you for uh, Sophia Antipolis. And the, there was a technology hub in Sofia and Tupolis in the south of France. It's, it's a city that's been built up between Cannes and Nice. And so we moved there that summer and that kind of, I was in the south of France. So, and that's how I got there. And then following that, just moved around, lived in Helsinki and Finland, lived in Germany and a couple places in Saarbrücken and Nuremberg and Stuttgart and followed him around while I was doing my thing. Um, and I was teaching 
Reebok Step and Reebok City Jam and these kind of courses because I had a dance background. I'd won a U.S. National Dance Championship, and that's how I got involved with the Reebok thing as a creator. And I was also doing my digital artwork and building websites and doing stuff for Sony and just traveled around. So I guess I was maybe one of the early digital nomads. You're saying all these things that sound really familiar to us now. Like, mm-hmm. I was doing my thing. I could follow somebody around. I could work in different places. I was working on digital. But back mm-hmm. then, th- you, there must have been no one else that you could say. I don't know. Yeah. I feel like th- you probably didn't have a large pool of people that shared your experience. Put it that way. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it was 1994, 93, 94. There wasn't really internet. Bare- people barely wrote emails to each other. Let's face it. A lot of people didn't even know how to work their emails back then. We still had American online, AOL. Yes. <laughs> and very few people were aware of Google. Amazon hadn't launched yet. There wasn't any video or audio on the internet. Everything was HTML and usually it had an ugly black background and a lot of like bright neon colors and some white text on it. That's what the internet looked like. So yeah, it's the, the world's changed immensely since then. But I think in my mind, I always knew as soon as I had a child that I would be living that type of a lifestyle going forward. So I think it just propelled the entrepreneurship side a lot. So having someone leave you with three kids and then say, okay, I'm going to be a rock star. (laughs) I want to jump back into that because I think (laughs) I'm all for if if you dream it, you can be it. But (laughs) tell me a little bit about how that worked because that's, I don't know, I would love to be a rock star. (laughs) <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? I had, um, I being in a band was like a side hustle. I wrote a bunch of songs. We played, went in a studio, recorded tunes. I just happened to have a studio within about half a kilometer from my house where I was living in Canyon-sur-Mer in the south of France. And so at this point, my daughter, my oldest daughter was probably five or six years old. And then I had a, my son, he, he was probably around three. And Sophia was just a baby, my youngest. They were two years apart. And at this point, I was like, okay, I'll just write some songs. I've got three kids at home. I hired an au pair from Germany who lived in the house with us, who helped us out. And um, I decided I would just record songs. I would go find a record deal and I would search the entire internet and find phone numbers and do whatever it took to, to get a gig. And lo and behold, I got a deal and they sent me to Scotland and uh, to record with a guy called Ian Morrow. And uh, we recorded a record over a period of about a a year and a half. I went to Nashville and did some songwriting with some songwriters from Nashville as well for the album and got a tour together. And yeah, that was crazy. But nobody, I think it's just how many doors are you prepared to knock on? And I was just going to knock on every door until I got a yes. That was my attitude at the time. And that's a recurrent motif in my life. I was going to uh, say, I don't think it was just at the time. It seems like from what I've learned about you so far, that's just kind of your thing. I'm like, you, you can say no to me. No, I don't care. I don't try to talk people out of something. If it's no, I'm going to move on to the next one and find my yes. And that's what I did. But I think the thing about me is that at that point, I was probably very naive and didn't know what I didn't know. So it made me, I was just like, I'm going to do this. And people thought I was crazy, but I just didn't care that they thought I was crazy. And I think that was one of the first times that when people, when, when I was looking back, even a year or two later, and people were asking me about this story, I realized that I may think differently than a lot of other people. And I don't know, I don't know why, but our mindset, the way we think about things and the way we 
the way we control our minds can be very powerful and that it creates opportunities because we don't create roadblocks for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And that's something I recognized. And so I started exploring that in how does my mind work? How can I pass on this type of perseverance to my children? And how can I help lead or influence people to realize that they can do a lot more than what they think they can? Yeah, I think your entrepreneurial spirit was definitely in force at that time, too, because there was something I was reading about your home concerts. I don't know how big that was in your life or in your career, but it seems like this concept of home concerts, long before people, again, were doing things like this. Yeah, nobody was doing it. I'm going to come to your house and play a concert and you can win this. And it seems so... Again, like an Insta promo, like you put it on Instagram or something now. But back then it was like, hey, I can come and play and it would get your name out there. And tell me a bit about that, because that was really something I found really cool. Yeah. So the home concerts, I don't know if you remember, there used to be an app or a website called MySpace. Mm -hmm. And MySpace was in its really infancy and YouTube had just gotten popular and people were beginning to post YouTube videos on MySpace and, you know, create links and embed um, video on their on their websites and on on the web. And it was a really brand new thing. The MP3 had just been born like in the in in the um, early 2000s and video came out and YouTube was this brand new thing. And everybody's like, how do you post a YouTube video? Wait, how do you make an MP4? Like, how do you do this? And everyone's like on the everybody's on like these forums that everyone was on, used to be on whatever. And um and so I decided, we've got these videos, I can post something. And then the press picked up on it. So we ran some PR on it. And I was off doing home concerts in just about every village in, in the UK. And nobody was doing that. Nobody was doing that. And it was fun. I went and played at somebody's wedding. I did, all, I did crazy shit, right? So it was, it was really fun. And I met some amazing people. And of course, these people would bring their community so there'd be like 40 or 50 people and it was a lot more fun than going and playing in a bar because it's a captive audience they'd usually have i don't know chips or popcorn or some pizza and some beers and we do a couple of sets and then you get to know these people and it was a way of um, generating little pockets of fans as well because those people that they met you it's memorable it's very um intimate so that was a lot of fun yeah thanks for reminding me of that i forgot that we even did that (laughs) (laughs) and i know one of the highlights too or i would assume it's a highlight was also singing with cool and the gang oh yeah that's true yeah i did the. i'm just taking you down memory lane (laughs) yeah yeah i've got that album somewhere in here i found it the other day when we were painting these shelves they were like an ugly bright pink and we painted them blue a few weeks ago and i was like oh i was on that album (laughs) that was cool yeah and i got to hang out with cool um and the gang (laughs) <laughs> in Nice <laughs> and the gang at the Nice Jazz Festival and record for the album. It was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun. Thanks for bringing that up too. I forget I do these things. I'm in Trilogy 3 now, so it's been a while back. <laughs> you, so, you should write the titles to these books for me, right? All right. When you're when they're all written, let me know. I'll send some jazzy titles to your way. <laughs> What kind of was the bridge? Because like you said, that was you're in Trilogy 3 now. I know you've had many startups. This entrepreneurial spirit's been going through the whole thing. When did you say, okay, I'm going to shift from music? Do you feel like you've shifted entirely from music to everything else? Hmm. Was there a shift? I think the main shift was um, 
I felt like I'd been called to a sense of purpose to fight the pirates for the small musicians of the world. And for me, that was a bigger mission and more important than just playing music. And I think that really took me down the back to the technology side of me that I really love uh, to work on. I like building things. And so building cartoons was really fundamental, really important because I was, I saw the landscape changing. I was probably one of the last uh, records that were on shelves at Woolworths, for example. This is right in the moment when Woolworths was closing down, HMV's closing down, Virgin Records closing down. And uh, the music industry was in a state of flux. They didn't know what, how to deal with it. There was no iTunes yet, not the iTunes that you could stream music on. And the record industry were really like, oh, everyone's going to want to keep their music. They still were in that mindset. The albums, you know, what's our solution? We'll bring back vinyl. Yeah, you can't copy that. You know, it's like, what are you talking about? And so I flew around the world and talked to all the major labels and we did some big deals with independent labels and we created this platform called Cartoons. And the model was that people would be streaming music in the future. They wouldn't want to keep downloads. We offered downloads um, against advertising revenue for the artists and then we offered streaming. And nobody else was doing that. Peter Gabriel had a Wii site. I think it was called Wii 7 or something that he had started up. You didn't have Spotify and you didn't have Apple Music or anything back then. And so we were pioneering and pushing the record industry into accepting the fact that eventually people were going to stream music. Mm-hmm. And one of the guys, I think it was Sony, I was in New York. And I was having a chat with the, the head of Sony Music. And he was like, people like to go camping. So how are they going to bring their music with them? Because they can't stream their music. Are you for real? There's these mobile phones now, right? And pretty soon we're going to have stuff that streams music. We already have cameras. What are you thinking? And nobody saw that coming as fast as it did. MP3, it was like, for me, Pandora's box. As soon as it was announced that this technology existed, I'm giving it right. This is changing everything. So we built the platform Tons of artists came on, tons of labels, tons of uh, publishers, um, every man and their dog that, you know, we could drum up. We did, and we did a deal with Beggars Music, and so that brought us in, like, Adele and all these big acts. And so the music industry began to wake up, and we fundamentally changed that landscape so that they were accepting of models. And then uh, the recession hit around I think it was 2008, something like that, when the lights went off. And we kept it going uh, with cartoons, but other companies had already been in market and raised their 20 or $30 million. You know, when you start singing and shouting loud about something, a lot of other people go, oh, that's a good idea. Let's give that a try. And they're out yeah. raising. Yep. So you create a market almost with something that's as disruptive. And I'm glad we did it. Unfortunately, the music industry didn't choose the model that would be beneficial for the actual artists or musicians. They um, chose the model that was best for them. But that's typical of the music industry and not surprising. But I think in terms of pushing that forward, we made some we made some big changes. And for me, the changes needed to be for independent artists, for all artists to be able to generate revenue on a royalty system that would be a cut of advertising and that's what's happened unfortunately they're not getting very much of a cut for their music Mm -hmm. it does introduce more different types of deals within the recording industry so that was really the the main shift from music i was still in the music industry i just wasn't making as much music at that point and then shortly after her tunes i guess 
in my heart, I'm a creative person. So I, I, I decided I wanted to do something, fill a gap in the market that was more artistic. And I chose the beauty industry and I launched Ultralac and, and the ultimate two lines of, of nail polish systems that people could uh, do their nails at home with a UV lamp. And we launched that at the breaking point of the recession and uh, sold that all over the world. And the company was called Groove. And that's been going for a really long time. And I got bored because nail polish is like watching paint dry. Um, <laughs> Literally. <laughs> it really is. It really is. And, you know, because the creative part is, oh, let's create a nail line and we'll have, I can create the edge and I can design this and blah, blah, blah. But when you're really in a warehouse shifting thousands of products and it's like assembly line of getting everything moving and ordering in and setting up your supply chains and ordering things in from various countries like Morocco and Italy and everywhere else. It's wow. Okay. This is a lot of work too. And it wasn't what I loved. I loved building the website for the company. I loved building the packaging and all that kind of stuff, but I got bored with it and I thought, okay, let's get someone else to run this. I'm going to go back and, and do consulting and help startups. So I got pulled in to be like, Op, do operations and do marketing and do digital design and work on tech stuff. And eventually people would have me fill in and be a CEO interim or something like that. And I was working as a consultant and I realized that working as a consultant, a lot of the platforms take a lot of money out of your big chunks mm -hmm. of money out of your, when they're taking 20%, 30%, sometimes 50%. I thought this is not going to look good considering the J curve of the independent worker the solopreneur, yes. the independent consultant, the freelancer, and the numbers don't lie. There was a trajectory even before the pandemic and that J curve was shooting straight up. If half the world's workforce will be freelance or gig or independent economy in the next few years, we're in trouble. We don't have infrastructure for them. Yeah. And I feel like you were so early on gig economy type I mean, with the kind of entrepreneurial spirit you had, it seems like you were sitting in a place that you were like, I've lived as a freelancer, but I'm also tech savvy and financially savvy. So it seems like you were perfect in the perfect position to come up with something to help those of us that are like, I'm creative and do freelancing. Help. <laughs> <laughs> it's the conversions of the, of those skill sets, I think, that is why the, the idea came. I always say that it's from this external force that just flows through you. But generally, when I start a company, I'm solving a problem for myself that I know other people have. And I don't do it all the time. It has to be this thing that's knocking me over the head a bit like Jonah and the whale. Swallow me up and send me to Nineveh or whatever, but I'm not going. I'm going to until it knocks me out. And so I was deliberating about this for a couple of years going, hmm. If I do it this way, what would that look like? Then I'd have to charge a SaaS. Huh, I don't like that model. How can I do this? And I woke up one morning literally and there's this thing my dad used to say, and you've probably heard this, but he used to say stuff like, if you want to beat the bank, you have to be the bank. Mm. And that would be when I was asking for lunch money or like extra money. Can I go to the movies, mom or dad? Blah, blah. And he's like, if you want to beat the bank, you got to be the bank. Go earn your own cash. Mow the lawn, that kind of stuff. And uh, so I woke up one morning and I was like, that's it. And I'm like, I got up and I'm jumping around and running around and everyone's like, Ian, Ian. I'm shouting at my husband, I'm going to create this streaming site. It's going to be a community and we're going to, it's going to be a bank and it's going to blah, blah, blah. And he's okay. You know, he's got his coffee. <laughs> he's like, whatever. So I go into my hidey hole, like my only little space for like several months and, and start building it. 
And I eventually got to a point where I could show something and I was like, okay, who am I going to call? And so I got David Jakes on a call and I had worked with him before and he said, I'm in. I love it. And he was, he's out in Silicon Valley. He was the first CFO of PayPal. And when he said, I'm in, I love it. Let's do it. I was like, okay, I can get a lot of people to work on this with me. And we had no money to fund it, but just a lot of people with skills who were willing to work night and day with me for several months. I think it was almost nine months. Everyone worked on sweat. And then we thought, okay, it's time to go raise capital. And that was hard work because it's such a big, chunky, this thing does a lot. It's a big machine. And, but we got through it and raised capital and raised another round and we're getting ready to raise another round now. And that's how we got here. So when, first of all, we should say that this is we do because we're just talking and talking about this (laughs) magical idea you had without a name, but it does have a name. But when you, I'm trying to picture this hidey hole, not literally what the hidey hole looks like, but I know when I'm coming up with something, what my process looks like, but it's very rarely anything to do with building a startup, tech, that kind of thing. So Mm. when you say you spent several months, what was it? What does this several months look like? Is it you're literally building a website? Is it you're coming up with a business plan? Is it all All of these things? All of it. Building a website, building the prototype and the interface for the first iterations of the app, being able to get to a position where you can show and tell what this thing does so that an investor can look at it and feel it, make it visceral. And the Heidi hole was me getting up every day, having some coffee on my computer, typing away, coding away, designing away, phoning people up, and and then around midnight going to bed and eating a little bit in between, but mostly coffee. That's what it looked like. <laughs> I was going to say, because you seem really energetic to me and I'm imagining you just like typing away on coffee. I would be bouncing off the walls, but <laughs> not because of the coffee, just because of I'm just trying to get this thing done. Yeah, it's sloppy. It's sloppy uh, being in a startup, but I was just willing to anyone who would help come on in, come help, come look at this. Let's work on this and just getting it to the point where it makes sense for people and we could articulate what we do a lot stronger and putting it in front of people so that they could see how much power this thing could have to help hopefully millions of people. So the numbers are still small of women who are tech CEO. Obviously, you've had multiple startups. So you're a CEO, business, tech, all these things that I think more and more women are having you know, success in because opportunities are happening. But when you're talking about this team, are there a lot of women that are part of your team? And how is it as a woman in this kind of industry? Yeah, we have we have a lot of women. My goal is to be sued for reverse discrimination eventually. <laughs> Because I don't care. Sue me. <laughs> uh, but I'm not re- I'm not averse to the white man, the black man, the Asian man or any of those um, people. In fact, we have those two. We have the other side. But we do have quite a few women on the team. Female advisors. We have uh, women on the board. We have women in the C-suite. We have women in the second chain of command as well. And my goal is to find those women who are tech savvy, who are great at what they do, they may have not had those opportunities to be the ops person or be the CMO or the whatever, but bring them up. And there are a lot of them out there uh, that haven't had the opportunity to actually be in C-level positions. And I think even with my succession planning, eventually I want to hire a woman. I would like to hire a woman of color to run this once we IPO. And I think 
I think we need to just, if we're, if we are women and we are in positions where we can make these choices and decisions, we need to be bringing uh, more women into the the decision-making processes for large companies. I think we'll create a much better society and a better world and a greater company culture if we do that. That's interesting. A friend of mine has used the expression that some people pull the ladder up with them. They finally get the opportunity Mm -hmm. or they've been lucky enough to have the opportunity and aren't extending that. And I think it's not that there aren't people out there that are perfectly qualified Mm -hmm. that aren't the quote-unquote white male Mm -hmm. But if the ladder is constantly brought up behind us or if the ladder was never there to begin with, it does seem like I I like your idea of being reverse reverse discrimination suit personally. Just just sue me. I don't care. I'm going to be extreme in this company. No, it's necessary. And I think that we're going into a new age. Right. Where we're not doing the old manufacturing kind of processes where people turned up, clocked in and did their work day. And we're moving into a knowledge-based society and women are coming out of the woodwork in droves. And I think it's brilliant. And because of the type of company we are, where you can be hybrid or fully remote, there's no barrier. You can have your kids. You can have your cake and eat it too, or you can have your kids and your career and not have to be at an office and grinding. You know, you can do your school run and come home to your computer and have your community and and have a work-life balance from your home, not have such a stressful lifestyle. And so our culture leans towards that. It's like, let's set goals together. Let's work when you feel that those hours are needed and let's get the job done and hold you accountable. But your time is your time. You balance it how you want to. If you want to work at midnight because it's quiet, Go work at midnight. And that's the way, that's the lifestyle of the digital nomad. You make your own rules and you're held accountable for jobs that you need to get done. And I think that makes it a lot more flexible for women and families. Yeah. And I mean, ultimately, that makes it more flexible, like you said, for families. So a man can have more or a partner can have more accountability in the household as well. Absolutely. And I think it's so interesting that, again, this is like looking back at how early days you were doing something like this, but how now it sounds like so obvious, but mm-hmm. we couldn't have done it like that quite before. You can see what I've done there. And I had this cool lifestyle. Now I can roll it out for everybody. Let's democratize the Indiana lifestyle, the Indiana Greg <laughs> lifestyle. You're pointing that out to me. It wasn't, it wasn't as obvious as it sounds like now that we are talking about this. But yeah, that's basically what I've done. I've said, okay, I'm able to do this and I've been able to do this for a really long time. How can I make this available to everyone? Because I think that we'll have a lot more happy people who are really fulfilling the purpose that they want to fulfill in their lives. Um, by using their skills and maybe not everyone. If you're a waitress, you're a waitress. You're not going to be able to wait tables online. If you're a chef, you're going to have to go to the restaurant and cook. But for a vast number of people who are in the workforce right now, the internet has opened extraordinary opportunities. And there are hard skills and soft skills that are required for the future of work in a knowledge-based society. And we're going to have more and more impact in the world, the more education that's provided through the internet, the more skill sets that that can be built through the internet. We know that colleges and universities survived through the pandemic and people still graduated from high school, right? Via the internet. So um, as we move forward, there's going to be hybrid solutions 
across the board. There won't be the uni course that you're taking and you have to have your bum in your seat at your uni. They're going to be live streaming this stuff. And more and more, we're going to be living in the homes that we pay so much money for. We pay this rent or we pay our mortgage uh, and we're going to be spending more time at home. Uh, And I think that's a really good thing for the environment, for the mental health of people, and also for being more local, but still being global. Because you can actually focus more on your community if you're not out commuting two hours to work. And you can actually look after those pets you bought during the pandemic now. (laughs) I was going to say, because you were starting down this route that I was like, I'm not even sure if people will ever see each other ever again if this is the way (laughs) we're going forward. But then you talked about focusing on your community as well. I think that's really interesting. I was one of the people that found my introverted side really loving staying home when I got the opportunity to, you know, I was forced to stay home and I was like, this isn't so bad. But then, (laughs) yeah, I mean, there was a big part of me that's like, I'm fine never to have to leave again other than to go for the walk or a run or something. But then I also feel like the more I indulged that, the harder it was to get back out and be the extroverted side of myself that does need some connection. Mm -hmm. But I guess there is a good opportunity for both. We can be part of our communities and we can build communities online as well. Yeah, for me, it's just the advantage of time. If somebody gives me back two hours of my day where I'm not spending in a car or commuting somewhere or whatever, what can I do with those two hours? I can build a whole new company if I have two hours a day. That's 365 days a year. If I have an extra six or 700 hours, you can get a lot done during that time. You can really enjoy having that extra time. And I I feel like the more people have that time, the more side hustles they'll create for themselves, the more education they'll create for themselves, the more creative outlets they'll produce for themselves, or even just enjoying their family more. And I think that creates a happier society. We did the 80s and 90s and 90s with such a grind where people are really like frazzled with the demand on time and, and energy and being employed and working for the man it's time that people find their purpose again, I think. I was on your LinkedIn <laughs> and was reading it, similarly to Warren Buffett, another business tycoon like yourself. Me and Warren, we selfies together. <laughs> You're basically the same. Not at all. But you both have famously said how much you like to think. Reading and thinking are the two things that I think he's attributed to his success in a world where people are so crazy so much of the time and never finding time to sit and read, thinking that thinking time is a waste of time. And I just thought that was really interesting because you're constantly coming up with ideas. My question originally for you was just where do you find time to sit and think and come up with these ideas and do your favorite things reading and thinking? <laughs> I do a lot of it at night or in, early in the morning. I just read a book last night because I was jet lagged. So I woke up at one and if, I, if I'm up with one, it is so quiet and I know no one's emailing me at one in the morning. I'll read a book. So I read through three quarters of the book and, and nearly finished it off this morning. I get up at five when it's really quiet and nobody else is up and I watch the sunrise and hear the birds and Uh, do the things I love to do and that gives me my own peace or like a central energy or headspace ideas though those are different ideas come when I've slept and if Mm. I want to get a new idea I'll go to sleep like it doesn't matter if I'm working on a problem working on a problem and I haven't found a solution for it I will sleep for 15 minutes half hour whatever that is and I'll wake up and Somehow my brain is rewired to go, Eureka, here it is. There you go. 
Well, it's like you said with We Do that you just woke up one morning. I figured it yeah. out. I figured it out. <laughs> yeah, it's like that. And then it's, it was the same with writing songs. I would wake up and I'd be like, oh, here's the whole song. <laughs> Off and away that goes. So there's something about how my mind processes. I don't know what I do if I go and visit some eternal wealth of knowledge that exists in my dream state that I can tap into that brings it forward or something like that, because I don't know where it comes from. I, I like solving problems. I like thinking through ideas. But when the magic happens, it's usually because I've slept. It's weird. And I like sleep. So mm-hmm. all those things sound so good together. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I like to sleep. And the thing is, I'm usually so tired. I have no problem going to sleep no matter what I do. I can. I remember one time, like this is a funny story. We went to the Grand Prix in Monaco and um, I fell asleep during the Grand Prix in the actual stands. And these really loud cars are going by. Everybody's got headsets on. And that's me. I just like, yeah, this is cool. And I'm sound asleep in the grandstand at and I fell asleep. I, I went on a date when I was at uni with a guy and it was the film was The Last of the Mohicans. Film comes on five <laughs> minutes in the film, me sound asleep. And the guys never called me back, never called me back <laughs> after that date ever. <laughs> I used to have a friend that could fall asleep at every party. I don't know what it was. I was like, are my parties boring? Not just my parties, any party. But it would be like everybody would be having a great time. We would look over and she would just be sometimes in the middle of the room, sound asleep. She wasn't yeah. drunk. She just was tired. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like I sometimes I worry uh, about being a narcoleptic because I, I will fall asleep so easily. It, it, hit, it hits about seven, eight o'clock at night, nine o'clock at night. If I sit down and I'm not in front of my computer and I just relax and put on a TV show or even start to read, it's lights out. It's crazy. Yeah. Insomnia has never been a problem for me, but I think I just burn a lot of energy. But I think also that's when my mind will process and calm me down. And I meditate a lot as well. So a lot of times if I meditate, the same result will happen. If I'm thinking about something or trying to spark something or feel like something's missing, the idea will come from that endless resource of knowledge that exists in somewhere in our dream states. I think everyone has access to that. It's about calming your mind. That's the way I do it. Yeah. And I do think that's one of the hardest things in the world that you're talking about. Like you said, especially 90s, noughties. Nobody's cal- nobody has calmed their mind for so long. So it's we're going and then we're tr- turning to, not that there's anything wrong with an app, but turning to an app to try to calm our minds because we've mm-hmm. gotten so bad at it. So mm-hmm. if we do have a little bit more space, a little more room to think, I think probably we'll all be coming up with side hustles, like you said, and different ideas and inspiration creative inspiration. I, I agree completely. I think that is the case. You're right. The internet as wonderful and extremely powerful as it is and extraordinary it is with its opportunities. It does have that downside to it. A good example is kids on their phones, young mm. people on their phones, instantly answering anyone who messages them. Like me, you can go nine hours and not hear from me. I've got phones sitting around here, but I don't care. If you text me, I'm going to text you back in nine hours. If you have not picked up the phone and made it ring, I'm going to wait until I'm done with my stuff and then I'm going to answer you. And I I do the same uh, with emails. I have select times exactly when I'm going to look at emails. Otherwise, I do not look at emails so that I have my headspace so I can focus on the things that I think are necessary to get done or the ideas or the strategies or those conversations like with you. This is a creative conversation we're having right now. Just our interaction will spark ideas in my mind, the things I haven't thought about for years, recall of memories that will Mm -hmm. probably spark other ideas. And that's a flow. We humans channel 
from each other that way, I think. So you're 100% right. Uh, in a world that's so fast-paced, where everyone's distracted by the minutia of detail with a million pop-ups and, I don't know, alerts and notifications on their phones, on their computers, everywhere. Like, how do people create? I don't know. You have to have some discipline, I think, to actually shut that down and think. Well, if this creative conversation sparks a new business venture for you, I want to be part of it. I want you to call me first. <laughs> Let me in on the ground floor. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so I always ask people to bring a quote, and I know you have a quote for me today. Can you tell me? Can you tell me your quote, please? What is my quote? Um, some storms uh, arrive in your life, not to disrupt you, but to create windows of opportunity that are probably bigger than the disruption itself. That's my philosophy or quote. It sounds like you've had a few. You you said one of your trilogy chapters might be out of Kansas or into Kansas or something to do. <laughs> Tornadoes it's, and hurricanes. <laughs> exactly. What's kind of the biggest hurricane that you think has led you to this point? Oh, gosh. Just the situations that fail, that you think are going to be the end of the world, that, that open up horizons. So divorces that lead you into becoming a recording artist, for example, like crazy. Or financial situations where you completely run out of cash and you think, ah, oh, if I let this go, what will happen? And then boom, this massive idea comes along and you end up creating a company that turns over millions and millions of, of dollars. Or situations where you have an opportunity out of something that you never thought you would be able to do, like an opportunity like we do. Setting out to be a banking services technology and seeing the stars aligned, um, it's a crazy idea. You start in your own little hidey hole and you, don't, you have no clue if someone's going to back you up or believe in what you're doing. And the number of people who told me I was crazy and then thinking, well, am I crazy? No, I'm going to keep doing this. I'll do something crazy. Why, why not be crazy? It's, it, I think it's a method of thinking differently. I think uh, Steve Jobs was right with his Think Different campaign. Here's mm -hmm. to the, mis the misfits, the square pegs in a round hole, the, the crazy ones. And being crazy enough to think you can change the world or have an impact on the world is necessary. There's not enough of us doing it. We need to create better societies. I think what I saw during the pandemic and in the last five or six years was this bipolarization of human beings and society, mm -hmm. this, these extremes. The marches about the 1%, uh, the, the Donald Trump divide and conquer, the king who creates all this havoc. And, and it had been going on for a long time. It's just we had a seat in the audience that was front row for a couple of years because there's nothing else to do, <laughs> you know? And it became so apparent that we're falling apart as humans. We need to create things that hold us together and focus on things that can make things better. And yeah, changing the world is one of those things that doesn't happen overnight and you have to persevere. And if people think I'm crazy, I don't care. <laughs> You know, I think you're a little bit crazy, but I think I'm a little bit crazy, to be honest with you. I think the crazy ones of us are the ones who are going to change the world, whether it's through tech and music and apps or whether it's through telling women's stories or, or a combination of both. I think, yeah, let's keep changing the world. Yeah, we need to keep that chisel out. Exactly. <laughs> the slow tick, tick chisel chisel whatever the sound this you made the sound better than me <laughs> i would love to just say thank you for joining me today and for telling your story but if there's anything else you would like to share with the audience please do i don't have much just download we do 
WEDO on uh, Android or iOS and reserve your username. We're launching really soon and persevere. You can't have at Kristen Duffy because I've already taken it. So thank you again, Indiana, and best of luck with WeDo. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks again for listening. Would you buy me a coffee? Yes, I love coffee, but this one's virtual. If you like what you're listening to, head over to coffee.com, that's K-O-F-I.com, and support the podcast by buying me a coffee or lots of them. There's also a button you can click at thesecondchapterpodcast.com if that's easier. Thank you, thank you as always so much for your support. The Second Chapter is just getting started, so your subscriptions and five-star reviews mean so much. The Second Chapter is brought to you by Slackline Productions, a production company dedicated to redressing the balance of women's stories being told and who's telling them, with a specific focus on women 35+. For more about Slackline, visit slacklineproductions.co.uk. Thanks again.